Hi guys, this is Jack Spierko once again with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, February the 22nd, 2019, and it is episode 2387 of the Survival Podcast. And since it is... Well, I haven't done it for a while, have I? So let's do it. Friday! 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 Yes, since it's Friday, 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 it is time for the Monster Show of the Week. Instead of Monster Trucks, we bring you Monster Answers from the TSPC Expert Council. And I've got a great lineup for you today. I've got Jeff Lawton on deck. He's going to talk to you guys about his new PDC. And I'm going to tell you you can get his free permaculture masterclass as an introduction and see if you want to go further. That's almost two and a half hours of free, amazing video with lots of information in it. Stephen Harris is going to talk about how TSP state-level groups are helping our community and each other. We're going to talk about alternatives to Patreon for creators who want to monetize their work online. Get that side hustle on, make that money, improve that life. Nicole Sauce is going to talk about that. Thoughts on sweeteners that are sugar-free. Lots of us trying to live that more paleo lifestyle, but we can't have a little bit of a sweet tooth. Chef Keith will give you some thoughts on that. I will give you some additional thoughts when Chef does his uh, piece on that. The relationship between nail strength and health with old Doc Bones, if we can get him to climb out of his casket long enough to talk to us. More on running solar with aquaponics from Sean Mills, reinforcing what Jack said. You probably don't want to, uh, but he'll give you a breakdown, and it'll be a really good lesson in how to size a solar system. And I have a new technique I want to talk about that can help with not running continuous with aquaponics that I think will be pretty cool. Um, who does and doesn't need... A CPA, and what's up with the Trump tax plan? And people saying things like, "They've got a review. I got a, I got a, a refund every year until this year, and now I owe money, or now I got a little tiny refund." And, and having no idea how taxes work. So I'm going to talk about that. You know, I say people ask certain questions. I'm like, tax attorney and CPA, tax attorney and CPA. But I was wondering if you could tax attorney and CPA, right? Um, but does everybody need a tax attorney? No. Does everybody need a CPA? Probably not. Those are two different things. We'll talk about all of that when we get to my anchor for the show today. Um, going into it right away, though, I want to remind you guys that next Saturday, I am opening up registration for the spring workshop. Uh, again, that's August. August. Spring in August. Ah, uh, no, we're not doing a work. We are never doing a workshop in North Central Texas in freaking August, because I don't want my students to die in the heat. Uh, no, it is April 25th and 26th is the workshop. But next Saturday, which is March the 2nd, I'm going to check make sure I'm right, so I'm not because I get these things wrong sometimes. Uh, next Saturday, March the 2nd, at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, I'm going to open registration for the workshop. wanted to remind you guys of that, remind you what that's all about. We're going to build a 12 by 12 timber frame pond of about 4,000 gallons. We're going to go over pond construction, pond setup, creation of edge, fish habitat, plumbing, you name it. But this workshop is going to be all dedicated to that. It is probably one full day's worth of work that will spread out over two days in case it rains, because that never happens when we have a workshop, and also just so that we have more time to spend together. Uh, this is going to be a lot like a miniature version of the bigger workshops. Less time. 
less money. If you've always wanted to come to one in a time or money and or both crunched you out of it, this might be a good one to come to. And by doing it on a Thursday, Friday, that gives you your weekend back. So if you're coming in from out of town, you want to do some cool stuff in, in, in Dallas-Fort Worth, you can. We have the Fort Worth Botanical Gardens right down from us. Uh, the Fort Worth Zoo is one of the top zoos in the country, just as a couple examples. On the Dallas side, they got the Dallas Arboreum, they got the Dallas Aquarium, they got the Dallas Zoo. I don't go to the Dallas Zoo, but everything else is really cool, trust me. Uh, we got a lot of cool stuff around here, guys. So if, if you want to kind of double it up and make it a short vacation, it'll work out well. And definitely check out some barbecue while you're in the area, though you might have a little bit while you're here. Uh, we will feed you well. 300 bucks for two days. Seem like, seems like a lot, but those that have been here will tell you, you can't go out on the town and have a better time better food, and better drink for $150 a day than you can right here. We do it right. We've been doing it a long time. And uh, that's why, I mean, I think the biggest testament to our workshops is this. At any given workshop, you know, we'll sell 40, 45 seats to the bigger workshops. 50% or more of the people have been to more than three of them. Many of the people have been to almost all of them. I think we have one or two people who, who have been to all but like one. When you have something that takes that much time and money out of people's lives and they come back again and again and again, you know you're doing it right. When we started doing workshops, I had gone to a bunch of other people's workshops. And some were good and some were okay and some were pretty bad. And I, I, I just decided, like, I don't want anybody to ever feel like that. Like, when you come here and you spend your money and your time with me, I want you to feel like, that was amazing, I can't wait to do it again. That That's what I'm looking for. And... You know, people can tell you that, but what tells you that is when people come back. So if you've always wanted to hang out with a group of people that see it the way you see it and you've never been before, I'd love to – because I know I'm going to have recidivism. I'm going to have people coming back again. Man. I've been hearing from people already. I'd like some of you guys that haven't come, get in line, get in there early on Saturday, get your seat. I'm not rigging the rigging the rolls for anyone here or anything. So you guys, it's it's 18 seats. It's going to go like that. If, if you want to come, take this opportunity Come hang out with me. Next up, I want to talk to you about Jeff Lawton, man. Um, Jeff, to introduce this segment, Jeff's going to tell you all about his new PDC, all about his Permaculture Masterclass. I have all the links in the show notes for you today. I put out a standalone post on it today as well. It'll go out in the Daily Mail, so I won't go deep into what he's going to talk about. I just want to tell you where I'm coming from when I endorse Jeff Lawton. When I started TSP... About four months into it, I, I talked a lot about organic gardening practices. I really didn't know what permaculture was. I'd heard of it, but I kind of looked at permaculture was planting permanent things. So instead of planting corn, you planted trees. That's what I thought permaculture was. And somebody sent me Greening the Desert, which is like the first little video thing that Jeff ever did, and it was produced horribly. It is like one of the most awfully, from a production value standpoint, it's terrible. But it was so powerful. When I saw what this man did in the Dead Sea Valley, below sea level, in salted desert, in one of the most hostile environments on the planet, I, I, I was amazed. I couldn't believe it. I had a hard time even ever again complaining about you know an insect pest or not having rain for four weeks. Like, like I, you have nothing to complain about. Like You have it made. That's how I felt. And I was like, I have to learn more. I found Bill Mollison's Global Gardener series, and I completely consumed it. I found In Danger of Failing Food from Bill Mollison. And Bill Mollison, for those who don't know, is a founder of permaculture and Jeff's mentor. And I found all the stuff that Bill did. 
And then I got turned on to all these other amazing people. And I studied and I researched and I practiced and I designed and I got certified multiple times. And a few years into it, and I'm standing on a stage next to people like Jeff Lawton, next to people like Alan Savory, next to people like Joel Salatin, next to people like Greg Judy, next to people like Mark Shepard. And sitting there listening to people like Mark Shepard speak and reference me. I felt so incredibly humbled by things like that. And I, I love all these men and the work that they do. They have all been friends to me. They have all been mentors to me. But in, in Sepp Holzer even, I went and got to work with Sepp Holzer. That was an incredible experience in Montana. Built over, over a kilometer of hoogle, over a kilometer of hoogle beds we built there. And over the time though, I realized that each of these kind of well-known figures in this space had a thing they did, you know, where they work with cattle or cattle and trees or, you know, mainstream farming or whatever it was. But they all actually had a style, just like painters do. They had a style. And I always found, my, found myself coming back to Jeff's style. That when I looked at a landscape, I looked at it and thought to myself, what would Jeff Lawton do here? And I'm not saying I even do the exact same thing. That's the beauty of being an artist in permaculture. You control, you make decisions. But I always started from that style point. And the reason is this. What Mark Shepard does is amazing. But it's not going to help you plant your garden. It's going to help you build a farm of 100 acres. What Craig Judy does is amazing. But unless you're grazing cattle, it's not really going to be the thing that you're looking for. Same with Alan Slavery. Joel Salatin, amazing. But it's all about the livestock. There's no real design other than the, the systems of support and infrastructure for livestock. The one person that I found that was really teaching this stuff in a way that could be applied anywhere was Jeff. And the reason I say that is Jeff Lawton and his students using his methodology, which is just the permaculture methodology with his style. That's, that's all that it is have been able to do things like build an incredible facility that feeds hundreds and hundreds of students in the tropics of Australia. Big whoop, right? But they've also been able to build heavy food production systems in the most desolate place on earth in the Dead Sea Valley. They've also been able to build large-scale organic farms right in the middle of the Middle East. One of the people you'll see in the master class, they've built an incredible suburban permaculture homestead in the suburbs in Canada. And then some crazy redneck hippie duck farmer that you know has been able to build an amazing system in his rocky backyard, three acres of hell in Texas, transformed into a forest ecosystem. And one of the things I'm going to add to my show notes today is a video that is the main video on my uh, YouTube channel. And I invite you to take a look at it. It was made a little more than a year ago. It was made about April-ish, I think, Last year, as I took a walk through the forest that I built, based on Jeff's design style, and it's it's pretty amazing. Anybody that's, that saw this property when I first moved in, when they come here now, they're, they, they don't even know what to say. I've had students sit and just look off to our east and go, I can't believe there's a forest emerging there. And then a couple years later, I can't believe there is a forest there. That's why I am so excited about Jeff's work and Jeff's teaching. I myself tried to do better. I couldn't. If you want 
a world-class education, consider taking Jeff's PDC. And I'll say before I bring Jeff on, PDCs aren't for everyone. But the people that take them, take them seriously, and apply them to their life and their homestead to the, to, 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 the, to the last number, when people take all those steps, it transforms their life for the better. With that, Jeff, tell us about your new PDC and your Permaculture Masterclass. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. I'm one of Jack's expert panels. I answer quite a few questions on the show, and I enjoy it. I love answering people's questions. And that's because I'm a permaculture design certificate teacher, and I teach a lot of courses online, and I've got a new one coming up this year for 2019. I'm just about to release it, and we've added extra. I've taught two versions of this course, and this is what I call the online PDC 2.0, and for 2019, We've got some very special additions, some wonderful extensive mind maps covering the whole of the Permaculture Designer's Manual. We've also got a employment statistic, which will come out every month, giving you the opportunity to contact potential employers that have employment in permaculture-related fields. We have learning tests, which are fun, and keep you in check to see whether you are understanding what we're teaching as we go through the course, and they're really easy to engage with. We've also got a new certificate, which is a digital certificate that you can print high definition, but you can also include it as an icon on LinkedIn, on Facebook, or any of your social media, and it's clickable, and you can launch in there your final design exercise or any of your design work you do after you finish the course. So it's kind of like your CV online. These are all features we're adding to this enormous course. It's probably 20 times larger than anything I could teach face-to-face. -face. It goes for 24 weeks to complete, but it's also open for a whole year. There's over 800 videos in total. 300 are our own animations of particular lessons. You'll see some of these online as we do a promotion. And for anyone listening that is part of Jack's community, we've included a direct link to the Permaculture Masterclass. So this is an all-access page where you can watch each of the videos of this four-part documentary-style film. This is a pre-release that we're offering completely for free prior to the PDC. Those four videos are completely free. You don't have any commitment at all. And for those of you who want to explore the benefits of a full permaculture design certificate course, you'll find a learn more enroll option there on the page as well. Again, please see Jack's show notes for the URL details that we're offering exclusively to the Survival Podcast community. Thank you. Folks, I really recommend that you consider whether or not this PDC is right for you. It's not cheap, right? I mean, it's about $1,400. Uh, there's a couple different options depending on whether you pay in three payments or full lump sum payment. So it's something you have to consider, and you have to decide. Like I said, not everybody should take a PDC. 
just like not everybody should go to college. I would say, though, if you compared you know, what it costs to take a college course to what it costs to take this and what it will do for your life, this is probably win. So make sure it is the right thing if it's what you choose to do. There are links in the show notes and in the posts that I put out. In interest of full disclosure, I am acting as an affiliate for Jeff. So if you go through my links to watch the videos, whatever, if you ever sign up during this enrollment, yeah, I get. I don't even know what my commission is. I didn't even ask. I don't care. I just, you know, I'm willing to help. I would do it for free. So I uh, just want to be full disclosure like I always am about everything that I do there. Uh, next up, I have a piece from Stephen Harris on TSP state-level Facebook groups and how they're helping the community. Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in for the Expert Council, and I got something here I want to tell you briefly about that's really close to my heart. Back when uh CAC team and I were doing Hurricane Florence, and it was coming into North Carolina, South Carolina, I was uh, wanted a communication system for the North Carolina, South Carolina area with TSP people. So we in Michigan, we have a TSP in Michigan group, which is pretty darn active. It was kind of like Nicole Sauce's GSD, Get Stuff Done group, and I think it was... Tennessee. And so anyways, the Michigan group really took on a life of its own. I said, well, we need to have a North Carolina and South Carolina group. And so I went off and encouraged some people to form that up. And then I was thinking, it's like, okay, well, why not have all the states? I mean, because this is fun. And so I made some postings and some emails and on Facebook. And I said, hey, everyone, go form your own state group. And we got like 38 states that I know of or more that have TSP groups in them right now. You can go to the TSP Facebook forum, which you should be a member of, and say, hey, what's my local state TSP group for, like Minnesota? Or you can just go into Facebook and search and type in TSP Minnesota or Kentucky or Wyoming, and most of the time you'll find your group. They're all closed groups, and you have to ask ask to join and you'll be let in sometimes they'll ask you questions like you know jack's catchphrase and everything else uh before they let you in to make sure you're a real tsp person so in michigan some really fun things is we've already had a meet up when it was warm we did that at don's house and that was a great time and everyone was sitting around talking, and it's like, I made a game. And I said, okay, everyone, all your everyday carry stuff, except for your pistols, on the t- on the table. And I, Don, you're the judge. And I say, whoever has the, you know, judged by Don, the best everyday carry stuff on them wins a prize. And I, I brought something for a prize. And it was a load of fun. People were going, oh, can I go back to my vehicle and get my bag? No. Everyday carry. On you, with you. On table now. Game starts now. And it was great. And uh, we're going to have work with Harris days, like work with Jack days. Well, we're going to have work with Harris days. Only my place is nowhere it's as near as big. And uh, we're going to be doing some fun stuff here. And I already did the minus 15 degree Fahrenheit bug out trailer test in my bug out trailer, which I took from minus 15 to plus 70 with a propane heater, uninsulated, and 
you know, I, it was, I couldn't really plan this thing. It was like the weather was like three days in advance. It's going to be minus, minus 15. And I go to TSP Michigan group and I say, Hey, I'm going to, you know, do an all day thing in my bug out trailer and sleep out there at night. And, uh, I'm going to document it and everything. Why don't you guys come on out and say hi? And I had four intrepid people who marched over in the frigid cold through a foot of snow back to my bug out trailer. And we had the grandest time. Uh, in fact, there's a picture of all five of us, uh, sitting on the, uh, futon and an ottoman in the back of the bug out trailer. And it's really good. Great fun had by all. There's going to be a lot more work with Harris stuff for the Michigan people. And the other thing we did in Michigan that's being copied by the other groups is mutual aid. Okay? If you're TSP, and especially if you're TSP in my state, you are family, and we'll do anything for family. And we've all agreed when something's going on, like the big uh, snowstorm, ice storm we had, we all like checked in and I said, you know, me and many other people said, anyone need some help, you know, anything it is, you know, post it. So if someone has like a big tree limb come down onto their house and something and they're standing there like, well, that's, that thing weighs a couple thousand pounds and... I don't have a chainsaw big enough. All they have to do is go on their phone, go on TSP Michigan, say, I need help. Here's some pictures. Who's close by? You know, I got a 4x4 pickup truck. I got extra generators. Other people's are, are chainsaw holics and everything else, and they know how to work with wood, and other people are construction people. And someone will say, it's like, I got a 40-foot tarp I can let you use, and, you know, bring it over. We will help you. And the same thing is like, I have extra generators. If you're an hour away from me and your power's out and your generator is dead, uh, as we saw what happened in the minus 15 video experiment I did, uh, it's like, you can come over and you get my generator. Or, you know, I'll even take it to you. Or if you're like three hours away, I'll drive the generator and fuel an hour and a half, then another TSP here in Michigan will take it to you. And when we had a big thunderstorm in the fall, one guy just came out and posted, you know, the whole upper lower peninsula was like wiped out. Everything north of Clare and south of Traverse City was just like trees down, power outages. One guy just said, you need help with anything at all um, between Cadillac and Traverse City. Hit me up, you know, clean up, chainsaw, whatever. We are doing that for each other in our states and in other states. And I think this is a really good thing for us to be doing as part of the TSP community because we've really become more of a TSP family. And, you know, we care about our friends and our other people. And at the same time, I want that extra parachute. I want that extra parachute, and it's like, oh, something went, you know, the tree, there's a big tree over my house. And if it comes down, I want to be able to say, you know, I got an electric chainsaw. Okay, I want a couple people coming over with gasoline-powered chainsaws going, you don't mind if I keep the wood, do you? No, no, please, go ahead. Um, So anyways, please go find out your local TSP group. Have local TSP meetups in your state. Now, I know in Texas, 
you know, it's a little bit of an issue. Rhode Island, it's not. But uh, just work it out, guys. Work it out. Have a northern meetup and a southern meetup, whatever you want to do. But find your local TSP group and be active in the group. In fact, we don't let it allow any postings in the Michigan group like, you know, George Soros said this or any Oscillano Cortez Acadia memes or anything else. Stuff we're doing in TSP Michigan has to be from people in TSP Michigan. So it's like Rachel will post a bunch of stuff that she's canning and Don will be posting something he's doing and I'm posting stuff that I'm doing in Michigan. You know, and, and we'll post things that we wouldn't post in the USA TSB Facebook forum. You know, it's more personal and everything else. And sometimes some people will say, hey, that's pretty neat. Can I come over and see that? Yeah, sure, no problem. That's what a TSP state group is designed to do. So please go find it and please go join it. And if you want to see the 58-minute rough cut video of what happens to a generator, fuel, starting fluid, and batteries when they're all below zero, have been below zero for, I mean, the entire, they weren't, they've been outside continually. And, and, uh, what happens when it gets even colder and how things fail and how I recovered and everything, go to harris1234.com and sign up for my membership. You're going to have to be a platinum membership member to get that. Plus, Steve's Power Circle is back if you sign up. And I spoil the heck out of my Power Circle people. All my free stuff, as always, is free at stephen1234.com. Go there, enjoy. Thanks, guys. Let me know. Tell me about your experiences in the state group, your state group, so we can replicate it in our other state groups. You do something fun, we want to hear about it because we want to do it. Maybe I'll even have a barter blanket in my backyard. I don't know how good that will work with ten people, but I'll try. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Bye. Cool stuff from Stephen Harris. Uh, let's talk about the effects of sugar and trying to live a lower sugar lifestyle, paleo primal lifestyle, how that affects things like kids, all kinds of other stuff like this. This is kind of a complex question for Gary Collins, but he did a really good job with it. Gary, let's talk about this stuff. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the thesimplelifenow.com, where I discuss all things simple living to include primal paleo health, RV living, living off the grid, decluttering, you just name it, anything to make our lives better, right? Also, the new book, Living Off the Grid, is out. It's available on my website and Amazon, so make sure you get a copy and review it and say very nice things about it. That would be greatly appreciated. Um, today's question is layered. I'm going to do my best. As far as paleo for toddlers and you know infants, well, that's pretty basic. Uh Toddlers and infants are meant to drink human breast milk. So that's that's how it works. That's about as paleo as I can make it right there. And, you know, it's as with, you know, the history of humans, you would slowly bring in human food or human food, adult food and if it so it'd be, you know, some boiled, you know, maybe honey boiled, uh, you know, vegetables, little pieces of fruit, you know, maybe some very tender meats. Uh, so stuff like that. Uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty basic. So that's, I'll kind of 
that's all I'm going to say about that one. Uh, there's no specific, uh, I don't teach a specific paleo infant diet. But as uh, far as, I think there was some confusion as well when me and Jack were talking during the interview. Uh, we weren't saying that we consumed a ton of you know, empty calories and carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates, and we were healthy. What we were saying is we were skinnier because we did a lot of exercise. You know, me and Jack grew up in the 70s and 80s. So I I was sun up to sundown, skateboarding, biking, running around, hiking, you know, BB gun. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Um, but, you know, that was the reason why. I was still incredibly unhealthy and had a ton of health problems as a kid. Allergies, eczema, you know, upset stomach, sinus infections, headaches, you know, just you name it. I had the typical, you know, what we see from our diet today. So now with Ben having, you know, the typical side effects that when he consumes too many sugar, too much sugar, probably in the form of refined carbohydrates and sugars, um, such as candida overgrowth, skin issues, fatigue, anxiety. That's what happens on the American diet. We consume too many carbohydrates. So the way to eliminate paleo, again, no grains, no uh, dairy, no beans. Okay, that's the basic concept. The concept that gets lost is people do not reduce their sugar consumption. They replace it. And this was due to when paleo first got big, it was a bunch of paleo desserts, and that's what most of those cookbooks were and people were teaching other people how to make were these sugar bombs. And remember, just because it's a natural sugar doesn't make it any better. Your body is going to process it the same way. Sugar is a sugar. You know, carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates, complex carbohydrates eventually end up as a simple sugar in the end. Our body processes them all the same. So the mistake most people make when going to paleo is they they substitute so instead of eating a donut made from you know refined wheat flour, they make a donut or something or a you know a muffin out of almond flour and honey, date sugar, you know just load it up. So that's where a lot of people make mistakes. They eat too many nuts, which are high in carbohydrates. Not that nuts and seeds are bad, but you have to be careful. It's everything you know. You got to portion things out. So I hope that helps. I didn't want to get too far out there on this. Um, that's the best advice I give people is if you're going paleo primal diet, you still have to greatly reduce your sugar and pay attention to the sugars. That's the one everyone misses. So uh, again, hope that helps. Make sure to go to website www.thesimplelifenow.com. So yeah, just a, a couple ads, kind of what Gary was hitting on there at the end. Like so. When you go into a world of a low-carb diet, whether it's paleo, it's primal, it's something like the, the Dr. Eads uh, protein power plan, the oldest one we, I, that really is well-known, the Atkins plan, um, even some stuff that are in the realm of low-carb but not quite all the way there like South Beach and stuff like that. You don't really count calories. Now, you got to be careful. You can eat too many calories. If you if you eat the way you're supposed to in any of these diets, you will find it almost physically impossible to eat too much calories because the diets them hell, themselves suppress appetite. When we're eating significant quantities of fat, um, reasonable quantities of protein, and very low, low uh, amounts of carbohydrate, our body will naturally moderate itself. You will eat less. 
And if you're eating lots of, lots of low-carbohydrate, high-mineral, high-nutrient vegetables, leafy greens and things like that, again, the bulk combined with the, the nourishment of the fat suppresses the appetite. But if you... I mean, if you sit down and eat lard on a spoon and you've managed to shove 25,000 calories of lard down yourself somehow, yeah, you're going to still gain weight. But, you know, without the extreme exceptions to the rule here, we have to count the carbohydrates. And, and, and Gary's dead on. It doesn't matter where the carbohydrate comes from. It matters that the carbohydrate is in you. And unless it's an indigestible carbohydrate, i.e. fiber, a gram of carbohydrate is a gram of carbohydrate is a gram of carbohydrate. It's all sugar. And if you don't accept that, you will not succeed on any of these programs because then you will add carbohydrate load to the higher fat load and you will gain weight. Because fat doesn't make you fat, but fat and carbohydrate makes you effing fat. That's and, and, and carbohydrate combined with fat allows you to eat more. Instead of suppressing appetite, it stimulates appetite. So if you want to think about it completely in almost a gross way, if I gave you a stick of butter and said, eat this, you're not going to get very far before you're like, I don't... Uh. But if I wrap bread around it, okay? Oh, I'm pretty good now, right? It, that's the problem. And that's how we've gotten into this problem. And if you think about our ancestors, people say, well, they, they relied on fruit and all these high sugar things at times. At times. And generally, when they were eating these, like, the fruit fall was heavy, the game was scarce. They, they, they went season, seasonally and they walked everywhere. Now, Gary's talk about, like, his childhood versus my childhood. Like, we were active and all, but he was still sickly as a child. I wasn't. Um, but I lived close to primal pay as close as I could with like a Ukrainian grandmother that shoved potatoes down my throat to make up for how much food was on the plate. We always saw you know things like starches as fillers and of course her homemade bread you didn't have to shove that at me. I would eat that. But overall, you know, I hunted and I fished throughout my childhood. I was expected to bring home a certain quantity like if you're gonna go screw off for it that you better bring some meat back. I mean that's literally how my life was as a kid. Oh, you don't want to do shorts today? You want to go fishing? Okay, the creole better be full when you come home. Honest to God. So there was a lot of meat that came to the house that way, and that's how we were able to use as much meat as we did. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I I didn't have health problems as a kid in school. I, I thought I was in pretty good shape. And by the time I got out of airborne school, I was really in great shape. Um, it, was, it was going and... Honestly, I'll tell you what started my problems with weight was being broke. Getting out of the Army and being broke, making $6 an hour, packing boxes in a warehouse, and having to figure out how to eat on almost no money. If you make $220 a week, even in 1993, you're broke all the time. So I learned how to live off of, you know, I, I could go to the grocery store and buy one whole chicken, one discount pack of ground beef, like a five-pound tube of cheap-ass ground beef, a couple boxes of ramen, a couple cans of freaking stovetop stuffing, and a few vegetables, and I could I could go two weeks on that. And so then when you get successful, then you feel like you deserve what you want, so you start going out to all these restaurants, and you forget 
your roots. And that's what led me down a path to put me on a yo-yo of gaining and losing weight over the years and the stress of the corporate world on top of it. And, you know, having an expense account with an unlimited credit card to buy meals for people and having to have a meal every other night with some group of people that you never met before, don't want to meet, but you got to. Um, so that's kind of what screwed that up. On that note, we started with this off about kids. People that say things to me like, well, what about the kids? I'm like, well, what about the kids? Well, they won't eat the food that we're supposed to. Yeah, they will. Let me tell you something. Your kids will eat good quality, nutritious food the minute you stop providing them with garbage. Now, I'm not a prude, but you might, if you've ruined your kids, you might have to take a hard line and no Cheetos, no crackers, no candy, no cookie for like three months. And then you can bring small amounts of it back in and you have special times or allocated times, scheduled times. You get this now. You can do what my buddy David does. Like the one vice his kid has, he loves Pop-Tarts. He gets like three shipments of Pop-Tarts a year. You can eat them all in a week if you want to or not. It's up to you. So that's just one junk food and he's completely in control of it. But if it's all gone in a month and you're not getting your next shipment for four months, you're screwed on Pop-Tarts. You know, you find a way to do it, but... It, this is the thing I want America to know about kids and food. It is effing okay if your kids get hungry. It's okay if they're hungry for a long time before they break and eat whatever you have for them. It's okay. And it does suck. They will throw a tantrum. Kids are terrorists. I know. But you don't negotiate with terrorists. You give them terms, and when they, when they, when they come to the... That's how you, actually, you do negotiate with terrorists. These are our terms... We're not negotiating on the terms. This is what you can accept or you don't. And that's how you negotiate with kids when it comes to things like this. And so your kids will eat whatever you provide them. I promise you, there are parts of the world where if you give a kid whatever, they'll eat it because they're hungry. Let them get hungry. It's okay for your kids to be uncomfortable. They need to be uncomfortable. They need to learn to be uncomfortable so we stop creating new generations of teacup and china plate children. Uh, jack off the soapbox. Now we got a question here for Nicole Sauce on alternatives to Patreon, which is something we've been talking about a lot lately. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here from Living Free in Tennessee and Holler Roast Coffee with a question from Dave. Dave asks, it's a very simple question, what are the alternatives to Patreon? Now, last week there was a lot of activity on Facebook about finding an alternative to Patreon because they are shutting people down for violating what? Their community standards and not just their community standards on their site, but off their site. There was also a lot of activity around this in November, December, and at that time, Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin went public, leaving page, well, kicked off. I think David Rubin was, uh, kicked off and Jordan Peter said, said, screw you, I'm out. Uh, and they're looking at launching something new. I haven't seen what they've launched. I've looked for it. It's not easy to find if it is launched. I kind of have been keeping an eye on it, but so far, nothing tangible. But there is no easy one-to-one conversion at the moment. <clears throat> kind of like MeWe is to Facebook, right? Where MeWe is kind of like Facebook, but a lot not like Facebook. And there are parts about it that are better and parts that are worse. But all the people are on Facebook and a lot fewer people are on MeWe. 
That's kind of like what you're looking at when you look at alternatives to Patreon. Podia and Buy Me a Coffee come to mind right now. You can sign up with those, and that is a way to accept money from your supporters or use Kickstarter or Indiegogo. People have leveraged those into funding for a while, but they're all mired in the same problem as Patreon, right? They are services that control what goes through their community, and they use the same payment processors who can pressure them to enact draconian policies. And we're seeing more and more of these policies get enacted at private web services all over the web, right? Patreon may have an elusive anti-free speech policy that they are enforcing even off their site, but they are also controlled by the payment processors they use who are pressuring them. It looks like they're pressuring them to take greater action than I'm comfortable with, to be honest. So what do you do? Do you go crypto? Well, there are alternatives in the crypto world to monetizing your com- your content. Steam it comes to mind. And the problem here is it limits your market to Steam it. That's it. I think it's actually quite worth learning how to use things like Steam it. But I don't think it's the best only road unless you were on Steam it at the beginning and you've somehow managed to grow enough for that to be there. But it's you're limiting your market to people who understand crypto and you should understand crypto yourself if you're going to use it because there's risk associated with keeping things in a digital currency versus not. So understanding that market a bit is a really good idea if you're going to go that way. So all of these alternatives, though, ignore the question you should be asking yourself as a content creator, and that is, how am I monetizing my content, and who is in control of my supporters? That who is a big one. Is it you, or is it Patreon? Is it you, or is it Steemit? Is it you, or is it GoFundMe? Is it you, or is it Buy Me a Coffee? You see what that means, Right. You just have to piss. If it's somebody else, you just piss that one off and they cut you off. So putting my conspiracy hat on for a moment, we have been seeing payment processes put the kibosh on firearm sales for years, right? And banks refuse to bank with legal medical marijuana dispensaries. And CBD oil salespeople are having trouble with payment processors, This is just getting bigger as there is more political pressure put on private companies to cut off funding sources. I mean, even Facebook, it's like super annoying, right? I cannot call a picture of snow white devil dust because it's racist and I get shut down. And that actually happened to me, right? So it's kind of like the right and the left have the same strategy, by the way. The right wants to cut off funding to the left through cutting their public funding, and the left wants to cut off funding to the right because by bullying their donors and making sure they get full lists of who's getting what and can publish their addresses online. It's kind of all the same thing. Both sides want more government for whatever they want government for, and that is where we queue up Jack's Clown music. And lucky us, we have a central banking system that empowers people to be in control. And that's why things like cryptocurrencies and completely decentralized systems scare the snot out of pro-state people. And by pro-state, I mean the politicians, political parties, businesses, and lobbyists who want to lock us down where they want us, right? That's not a left-right thing. Both sides do it. So back to your question, you ask for an alternative for Patreon. And there isn't one option, but I'll say this. Decide how much control of your livelihood you want to give up in exchange for access to somebody else's network. Patreon gives you a simple way to accept money, and it gives you access to their network, right? 
That's what you get in exchange for using their system. What you give up is if they decide that your content is against their community guidelines, they'll shut you down immediately and at 100%. So you need to decide, is that the price you want to pay? Are you ready to censor yourself? Is it worth the transaction fees? All of those things. Seriously do, though, consider taking as much in-house as you can. It's kind of like promote on Facebook, but get people to sign up for your email list, right? Same concept. You can promote all over the place. And if you have a WordPress website, your premium content paywall is only a plug-in away. We have recently started using one called Simple Membership. I've given the plugin link to Jack. It allows you to, to control by user access level who sees what where on your site. And it's free. I use one called Ultimate Membership Pro, which is a paid plugin. It has coupons built in and a couple other things. It's really hard to configure though. Simple membership, a lot easier to configure from what I understand. I know people who use BuddyPress and a whole bunch of other ones. The caveat here is that Jack can deploy these. I can deploy these. Lots of you with some web experience can deploy these, but you may be better off paying somebody to get it set up for you so that you have the payment systems all tested out and they've run it through a number of scenarios. So just food for thought there. And I can tell you this, what mine does for me is I lock pages and documents down behind a password for a user account. It shows specific navigation for my members that does not appear when you're not logged in. And I sort of kind of get recurring billing. And that's kind of the rub because even with a plugin, you're still using the payment processors who may or may not love you. Now, what I haven't noticed membership areas doing really great is locking down videos, although there are ways around it. You can just set up another way to handle files and have them on Dropbox. You can password protect them on YouTube. There's a lot of ways to handle that. You just have to think, how am I going to lock this down? And honestly, that's the same issue I have with Patreon. So whatever. Um, learn about and leverage crypto if you can, and then keep your eye on what decentralized networks are emerging, but realize there is only so much you can do there's only so much you can do if the payment processors refuse to fill transactions. And with that in mind, I reached out to some payment processors, and I'm super excited about this. Uh, there's a one called electronictransfer.com. They have a $20 a month fee, I believe, plus 3% for transactions. But here's the deal. They're pro-Second Amendment. So they're they're able to get firearms transactions through for people who are legally selling firearms. And so I called him and I'm like, what about all these other things, among which was CBD transactions, because a friend of mine who sells a CBD product was shut down by Stripe. And they were like, you know what? We can do that. We'll give you the confirmation of timeline on rolling that out because they have to make some changes to be able to handle that. But we're up for it. So if you are looking for a good pro second amendment processor and you're willing to pay that monthly fee, which you don't have to do with Stripe or PayPal because they take it out on as larger fees per transaction, right? Then check them out. It's electronictransfer.com. I, I have not deployed them myself through a WooCommerce plugin, but I know that they can. And one of my really close web friends has used them for sub, for lots of clients and he hasn't had trouble. Like their customer service is great. I am willing to say them on Jack's podcast because I checked them out. It's why it took me so long to get this segment. It's taken two weeks. 
And that's what I would say, right? So summary, decide what you're willing to give up in order for ease of transactions and to access a community and do look at what it would take to get your supporters under your control because frankly it ain't that hard and keep your eye on emerging decentralized networks with that guys if you want to know more about me you can check me out at livingfreeintennessee.com i still have a few seats open for my spring workshop april 25 26 and 27 in tennessee so if you're interested in that head over there click on the big red button read about it and hope to see you make it a great week all right, and since I talked quite a bit about this last couple of weeks, I will not add to Nicole's segment just to say that it was great, and we will roll on here. So we talked about sugar with Gary Collins. Now we're going to talk about sweeteners that are no-calorie sweeteners, that type of thing, with Chef Keith Snow and alternatives to sugar. Chef, take it away. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and the Harvest Eating Podcast. David from Florida. I wanted to talk to you about low-carb sweetener. So um, just like you, I am interested in cutting the carbs and um, not using sugar. I think as I get older, sugar is just not a good thing for me. So which sweetener can you use? Well, most of the time people recommend stevia. And stevia is derived from a leaf, the stevia plant. It produces leaves. They use those to make the uh, powdery stevia-based sweeteners. I have found only a, a couple of those to be something that I can use because with the sweetness comes a pretty nasty aftertaste, in my opinion. I know I'll get some daggers thrown at me for saying that, but this is just what I taste. Um, and that's why I don't use phony sweeteners like Sweet and Low or Equal or any of those. I've never, I've tried them once, like, I don't know, gazillion years ago, and those things are horrific. But I don't find the stevia to be, except for the feeling of knowing that it's natural, I don't find it to be much better because of the, the strong aftertaste. So in my hunt, I've come across um, something called Lakanto, L-A-K-A-N-T-O. I'm going to have uh, Jack put in a link to Amazon, which is an awesome place to get the Lakanto products. And they make two different types, sort of a powdery one that resembles regular white sugar. They also make what they call Lakanto Golden, and this is a little um, more coarse, and it resembles a sugar in the raw, for those of you that, I think they carry that at Starbucks. I don't know. I don't use sugar, so um, I'm not sure. But anyway, it's more of a, it's a less processed sweetener sugar in the raw, and the Lakanto version, they call it Lakanto Golden, and it has kind of a mapley flavor. Now, these two products, for me, are much, much better. They have uh, pretty much zero glycemic response, according to the company. I've read their website. I've also spoken with them. And this is what I keep in my pantry for my own family. It works really well for cakes and pastries and that sort of thing. And then um, I use it for cooking. You mentioned barbecue sauce. You know, if you're low-carb, these type of sauces, barbecue, teriyaki, I mean, they're they're a train wreck because they have really high carbs in them. Now, how much do you use? That's the other thing. Let's not go crazy, people. If you're trying to, you know, watch your carbs, just because something is loaded with carbs, if you put a half a teaspoon on something, you know, your macros won't go crazy. But, you know, you have to keep in mind something like cooked down tomatoes. A lot of these barbecue sauces and ketchups and these type of things um, have 
a base of tomato paste, which is very rich in carbs. And when you add sugar to it, yeah, it's going to get up there. So if I make a barbecue sauce, which I do frequently, um, I will try to make sure it's got a lot of lively flavors in it. Um, chipotle, you know, different spices and all that. And then I don't add any sugar, but I'll add a little bit of Lakanto golden to it. And that tends to sweeten it up just enough without the heavy glycemic response. So David, that would be my answer. And, uh, I think, uh, you'll find those to be pretty good substitutes and they'll give you the sweetness you want without all the blood sugar increase. So with that, I hope everybody has a great weekend. Jack, thanks for letting me contribute. And uh, I encourage you guys and gals out there in TSP land to keep calling in the questions. Take care. Okay, so I did put a link in the show notes to where you can find these Lakanto products on Amazon. Uh, I have not had enough time to deeply investigate this. I believe Keith talked to them and they said what they said and that they say what they say. It doesn't mean it does what it does. I'm not ready to give the official Jack Spirico seal of endorsement on this product yet. I am going to order some, I am going to try it, and I am going to do more research. If there's anybody out there, what I think would be interesting, because this stuff is made from uh, a sugar from a plant called monk fruit, is what I've learned so far about it. And supposedly it's just a sugar you can't digest, so therefore it will have no effect on blood sugar levels. I've seen stuff claimed to do this in the past and then later be proven wrong. I think an easy test would be somebody that tests their blood sugar anyway. Obviously, don't take so much of it that it could cause you a problem. But if you tried it and immediately, you know, if you did it with water or something um, so that there would be nothing else, no other food to change your blood sugar and take two blood sugar readings a certain period of time apart, and somebody that does that because they, their life depends on it would know better than me how, you could verify if it does or it doesn't. Because if it doesn't elevate blood sugar, then it doesn't have an effect on the inulin-insulin response, and it's, it's, it's let's say, kosher for low-carb, paleo-type diets. However, if it, if it maybe has a caloric yield, that could be potentially an issue depending on how much it is. But that, again should then have some sort of uh, a response. And if it does, then then how do you say it's non-adjustable? So I don't know. I don't know. But I think this is an interesting thing. I also, though, I want to point something out that Keith was talking about with this aftertaste with stevia. Stevia is basically the sweetest substance known to man. I generally use liquid stevia. I stay away from powdered stevia, and I'm going to tell you why. Most of the time, That funny aftertaste that you get when you use a powdered stevia isn't from stevia. It's from one of the other things that the chef was talking about. You know, it's saccharin, it's sulacrose. Sulacrose is an indigestible sugar, kind of like this Lakanto says to be. And what they do is they market it as stevia. But if you read the ingredients, and it doesn't say 100% stevia extract, and maybe some sort of a filler, because if you... If you had pure stevia powder without a filler, it would be ridiculously sweet. But if there is any other sweetener in there, it's not stevia. It's stevia and that other sweetener. And almost every, I stopped looking. There may be some that is, but I picked up a couple boxes of this stuff off the shelf and read it. When all these uh, stevia products started coming out, the powdered ones, put it back on the shelf, never looked again. That's why I recommend a liquid stevia extract that I'll also link to. Now, 
The thing about stevia is, in some things, it tastes just like sugar. And in some things, it has an aftertaste. It is a really weird thing. For instance, I no longer drink coffee with any sort of sugar in it whatsoever, but I used to. When I started to try to get off of sugar the very first time, I discovered stevia. I put it in coffee. It tastes like ass. If you use enough to get any sweetening whatsoever, it tastes like ass. It just doesn't taste good. Put it in tea, it tastes great. Put it in lemonade, it tastes great. So you, with stevia, you have to kind of pick and choose where to use it. The best thing I've been able to do with stevia, when you do go off the reservation and you do something like a baked good or something like that, it calls for sugar, is to cut the sugar by one half and make up the difference with the stevia. That you have to be careful with because some of those recipes, the sugar actually has some effect on like the product. I don't eat a lot of that stuff anyway, but it's a good way to cut sugar. I have not found that it makes a great replacement for sugar in that type of food. Not a big deal to me because I'm not going to be eating, you know, then you're back into carbohydrates anyway and sugar is sugar. Lastly, especially when you are on not a maintenance phase of this type of a diet, but on a loss phase, you're trying to lose weight. I believe that there is enough evidence now to say that artificial sweeteners are a bad idea during that period of time. They create a biological response, a craving response that you don't need in your life, and they also can create, I believe, certain signals to tell the body to slow the metabolism down. Uh, they're fine, but you've got, you got to look at it like you're a drug addict when you go into something like this. You go into the clinic... Maybe they give you some methadone to weigh you off, and that is when we do that with low carb. We don't go completely to, to low carb overnight. We cut the carbs back up until we go to almost no carbs, but we do it over a couple of weeks to let the body adjust. But once you're there, once they take the methadone away and you don't start convulsing and spitting out of your mouth or whatever, okay, you're cold turkey for the program, 60, 90 days inpatient. We've got to get you off the dope. Most Americans are so highly addicted to carbohydrates and sugar, and specifically carbohydrates and, and simple sugars together combined with fat. It is one of the most addictive substances on the planet. This is why people eat, you know, if you gave them a baked potato, they could never eat as much baked potato as they'll eat french fries. Because when you combine the fat with the carbohydrate, again, it, like I talked about earlier, it triggers a, a, a response This is an evolutionary response designed to get us to put fat on when we're going to go through a winter as hunter-gatherers, which we ain't anymore. We are not. We can't live like that since we aren't that anymore. Okay. All right. With that, let's take another one. This one, uh, Doc Bones talking about the connection between strong nails and health. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Doctor Bones of DoomandBloom.net. We will find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its third edition, plus our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibiotics in Austere Settings, and the designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel is from John, who writes, I have a question for Doc Bones or Nurse Amy. Is there a supplement or mineral I can take or anything I can do to strengthen fingernails? My dad had fingernails that were, well, tough as nails. He could use them as a screwdriver. 
Mine, however, are thinner, they're soft, and they tear easily, making it harder to do outside work without splitting one or tearing one on the edge to where it connects with the skin. I asked my doctor, but he dismissed the question, saying I just have to live with it. How about that? I figured I'd get a second opinion from you. Thanks, John. Well, John, that just frosts my cookies that he just told you to live with it. There are indeed things that you can do about your fingernails. Fingernails are made from a tough protein known as keratin, but everyone's built a little bit differently. You may not have inherited the thick nails that your dad had. Fingernails suffer all kinds of abuse, overexposure to water, especially very hot water, harsh cleaning products, acetone, detergents. These can all strip nails of their natural integrity. You didn't mention your occupation, so I don't know if you do things daily that can damage your nails. Interestingly, your dad's using his fingernails as a tool is exactly what you're not supposed to do with your nails. He was lucky to get away with it without damaging the nail bed. You're right, John, by the way, when you suspect mineral and vitamin deficiencies as a factor in weak nails. Iron, magnesium, and other deficiencies certainly play a part in the strength of not only nails, but hair and skin, everything else that's made of keratin. You need to consume healthy levels of all the essential vitamins and other nutrients necessary for growth. These vitamins and nutrients include omega-3 fatty acids, calcium, iron, and magnesium, plus a goodly amount of protein. Hopefully you can get these from a good diet, but a good multivitamin will work also. I notice that when I take a daily multivite, my nails grow much faster than when I don't. Vitamin B7, by the way, commonly known as biotin, helps promote new cell growth, which may result in stronger and healthier nails, skin, and hair. If your hands get wet a lot when you work, wear gloves. Keep your nails on the shorter side. That'll make them less prone to break due to fewer exposed edges that can tear. File your nails, when you do, in one direction. Don't saw them back and forth. This can make your nails split and peel. Some people swear by soaking their fingers in oil to help strengthen nails naturally. Olive or coconut oil should work fine, but you hear a lot of different ones recommended. Pour a little bit of oil into a bowl to soak each hand for no more than a few minutes, then massage the oil into your nail beds and cuticles. I also suggest avoiding the use of alcohol-based hand sanitizer to dry out your nails and probably not a good thing for someone who's not starting off with pretty strong nails. John, your nails may never be as tough as your dad's, but doing some of the things that I mentioned will help make them stronger than they are right now. Give it a try. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook and our latest Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. And make an old man, me, very happy by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, YouTube at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy channel, and Facebook on our Doom and Bloom page. Thanks again. Next up, let's do a little more beating up on the idea of building a solar system when we don't have to, to run something small like an aquaponics system and just see how expensive that can be and how it still doesn't solve all the problems. And at the same time, let's get a lesson in how we calculate the needs of a solar system because there are some things solar is very good for. John is an engineer that builds solar systems. He's about to say, basically, you shouldn't do this. But he's not anti-solar, right? Sean is the guy that made Stephen Harris admit that you can get a return on a solar system in a single day under the right situation. 
But he's going to walk you through this instead of just saying don't do it, which is kind of what I said to it uh, a week ago. But then I'm going to come back with a suggestion that somebody had in the comments and my thoughts on that suggestion because I thought it was really cool. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar. And I've got a question today from Matt. Matt says, Sean, if you were planning on uh, to run water pumps for an AP system, which is aquaponics, would you do 12-volt, 24-volt, or AC? Do you have any favorite pumps for this application? Uh, when I said AC, I meant inverting to AC. I'm planning a solar-only AP system at my place. Yeah, I could run power, but don't want to. So it's all about what would be the best system for about 200 gallons of grow, bed, grow beds. Just wasn't sure if Sean, um, for moving water, had a preference on 24 volts versus 12 versus inverting for AC. Well, Matt, thanks for the question. Um, I actually have researched this. When I put my aquaponic system in last year, I evaluated uh, possibly running it off of its own self-contained uh, solar po photovoltaic system rather than using the uh, the house uh, AC. Uh, what I found is I wasn't able to find a DC pump that was reliable enough to run constant or near constant like we typically do on an aquaponic system. I've heard of people running hydroponic systems on bilge pumps, uh, but you don't have to deal with solids in a hydroponic system as the fertilizer is a solution that you add to the water. And even then, uh, it seems like everyone was burning their DC pumps out in about two to three months. So, like I said before, I used 120 volt for the AP system I put in last year, but my whole house runs off of an inverter. So, it was easier to uh, to do an off-grid aquaponic system because I was already off-grid and had the, the big solar system. So, um, I, when I was kind of running the math on doing a standalone AP system off the grid, it didn't pencil out very well. So here's the problem. <clears throat> Let's say you get a small pump that only draws about 80 watts AC when running. Because, like I said before, DC pumps don't really work. So we're going we're gonna to do the math here on an AC system. Uh, so if you get a small pump that only runs about 80 watts, um, Let's say you're going to put that on a timer so the pump only runs about 16 hours per day. That means you need to deliver 1,280 watts to the pump each 24-hour period. Now, in most of the country, we can count on an average of five to six sun hours per day during the growing season. So let me go on a quick tangent to explain what average sun hours means. A solar panel is rated for its perfect condition output. That means solar noon, perfect tilt, perfect azimuth, and perfect temperature. So if I've got a 300-watt panel, that 300-watt is what I get when everything is just right. So let's say on a given summer day, you've got 12 hours between sunrise and sunset. Well, obviously, you don't get all those perfect parameters at sunrise, right? You get a percentage of the output, which grows throughout the day. And then you might get an hour or two of peak output in the middle of the day. And then the percentage goes down until sunset when it goes to zero. Well, if you add up that whole day's production in the summer, it'll be many multiples of a perfect solar noon output. But we also have to account for cloudy and rainy days. So once all those crappy days are factored in over the growing season, in, again, in most of the country, we get about five to six hours of sun per day or the equivalent of. So let's go back to our math problem. We need to deliver 1,280 watts, watts to the pump per day. 
and let's use five and a half hours of sun per day, okay? So we're going to divide the 1280 by 5.5, and we'll get 232.7 watts of photovoltaic output required. But now we have to account for efficiency drops due to the charge controller, the inverter, you know, dirt and grit buildup over the year, and the fact that you aren't optimizing the tilt and azimuth every single day. Uh, so let's use 80% as our efficiency number. So if we divide that 232.7 watts, by 80%, we get a PV output required of 290.9. So basically, we need a 300-watt panel to provide the amount of solar output needed to power this pump for 16 hours every day. Well, now that we know the panel size, let's talk about the battery bank. We, we want the power to go into a battery bank uh, using a charge controller, and then we'll use an inverter to pull 12 volts off the battery bank and convert that to 120 volts AC for the pump to use. So let's say we want to have enough battery to get us through one single rainy, cloudy day. Just one. If we get two in a row, we're in trouble. This is just going to be to keep the fish from peeing and pooping themselves to death when we're not getting good sun. Well, in this scenario, like we said, we need to deliver 1,280 watts to the pump at 120 volts. And we know that watts is equal to volts times amps. So if we divide that 1,280 by 120 volts, we need 10.67 amps. And again, we're running this 16 hours per day. So 10.67 amps times 16 hours gives us a total daily requirement of 170.67 amp hours. Now, if we use the Sam's Club Duracell GC2 batteries, which are rated for 215 amp hours at 6 volts, we would need to string four of those batteries together in a 430 amp hour 12 volt uh, system and one day of clouds would require 40% depth of discharge. So if those batteries were topped off and the next day we didn't get any sun and we needed to run that pump for those 16 hours, we would use 40% of the available electricity in those uh, batteries, in those four batteries to get through that one single day. Now, if we used, if we only used two batteries, so that would be 215 amp hours at 12 volts, one day would require an 80% depth of discharge, and your batteries are going to be dead in one year. They may not even get through one full year. Um, now, when I say one full year, that's based on a, a daily uh, depth of discharge of 80%. So obviously, we're not going to have a daily depth of discharge for 80%. So the one year could could end up being four, right? So you could look at this and say, well, you know, I understand that my batteries are going to last longer if I don't go down to that 80% depth of discharge, but for the system that I'm actually running, I think two is going to be okay. And that would be perfectly fine to come to that conclusion. But here's our problem. Well, how do we charge the batteries back up? We needed 290.9 watts just to run the pump. That extra 9-point watts on the panel nameplate on a 300-watt panel is not going to keep our battery topped off, and it definitely won't recharge it after a cloudy day. So if we get one cloudy day, we drop, let's say we went with the two-battery configuration, we drop down to 80% depth of discharge. we got to put that energy back in the battery, or we're really going to kill it, okay? Well, if we need 290 of the 300-watts uh, rated output just to run the pump on the next day when we do have sun... Well, where's the energy coming from to charge the batteries back up? 
So I'm not going to continue through that ex thought experiment anymore because I think you can see how much of a problem a small-scale solar system uh, running an AP on 120-volt AC can be. And we can even pair this with a very cheap charge controller and a cheap Cobra inverter. Um, but, I mean, realistically, just with what I'm talking about, we're running – probably in excess of $600 right now. And that's with a system that gives us one day, one cloudy day of backup. Um, now there is always the option of running a small DC pump that's wired directly to a small panel. Uh, that's called solar direct. And you just run, the pump runs when the sun's out, when the sun goes down, the pump stops running, but you have to understand you're going to be replacing that pump regularly. Um, if you have access to AC, I don't see why you would want to run an aquaponic system off of photovoltaics. If you've got a large photovoltaic system, well then it's an easy, uh, it's an easy thing. I think you definitely want to stay with the AC pumps uh, and maybe Jack can, um, can comment more on that. He's definitely more, uh, in depth in terms of knowledge with aquaponic system. Uh, but for my money, I'm staying away from DC pumps. I'm sticking with AC. And if I've got access to run, you know, for $600 in this type of investment, I might be able to just tr dig a little trench and run some Romex out there and uh, have an outlet that specifically runs the AP system. So, hey, Matt, that probably wasn't the answer that you were looking for, but I think it's the one that's the most honest. And uh, if you guys have any more questions, I've got a little bit of a backlog, so I'm going to be working through those. Uh, appreciate the questions, though. Keep sending them in, and I'll keep answering them. Thanks. Have a great day. So we, we kind of talked about this before um, a little while ago. Uh, 21, 2381 was the episode. It was on uh, February 14 that we did this. So you're going back a week in a few days, right? Um, and somebody had a we, – we talked about maybe doing it with D.C. And I, I, I'm going to tell you that my experience has been – it should be a couple months, but you're going to burn pumps up in an aquaponic system. Uh, over time, you will burn up pumps. You need to have a extra pump on the shelf for your system at all times that is either the exact same pump or you've already figured out um, if this if this old one fails, here's all the parts I need to make sure I can just plug it straight back in and get your system running again. But one of the things we had talked about is not running all the time. And the problem with... You know, a direct DC, one of the things Sean mentioned is, okay, you're going to run all day long and then shut off at night. You, there's a good chance, especially in a warmer time of year, your fish are going to die. You, you can run intermittently, but you can't go 12 hours without running. And then the other thing, as I've said before, if you have a system shut down for that long, uh, you can have a situation where you have enough bacterial die-off when it kicks back in, wherever the bacteria was reserved could cause problems and maybe even some fish death. So we, we don't want to be shut down for long periods of time. But... Whether we're doing solar or AC, saving electricity is good. Using less energy is good. So one of the things that we've talked about is running systems where maybe they run for 15 minutes every hour. I would say that a lot of your year, you can do that. And then in the hottest time of the year, maybe you run 30 minutes every hour. If you just do 30 minutes an hour, you're cutting your electric bill in half. This is a good thing. The problem ends up being... Okay, now that ebb and flow bed, was it full? Was it empty? 
you know, it didn't really cycle. And then, you know, with an ebb and flow bed, are you having problems with your cycling? Bell siphons, because the other thing that came into this episode was the bell siphons can malfunction. They can hang low. They can hang high, what have you. Well, this guy said that if you were running, in a comment on the blog, he said if you were running uh, a timer, then basically you could have your regular overflow stack way up at the top and a much smaller hole that's way down by the bottom so that that hole just wasn't capable of running water out fast enough. And then when the pump shut off, then all the water would run out through that smaller hole. I actually think this might be the way to go. instead of Because what I talked about is using a solenoid. So basically the water's running constantly, and you have a second opening with a solenoid on it. And every 15 minutes, for instance, let's say that solenoid opens for 15 minutes and then closes for 15 and opens for 15 and closes. And that's what Richard, I can't think of his last name now, Hastings, Richard Hastings, who we've had on the show talk about aquaponics. He's taught in my classes on aquaponics. He's doing it commercially. That's what he did because it, it eliminated the variable of a, of a problem bell siphon. It just wasn't an issue anymore. But if you just have a smaller hole, well, that works. The other thing you could do to fine-tune it is that smaller hole that's that's got a low stand-up pipe, or no stand-up pipe, just a bulkhead at the bottom. That could go out and then to a piece of pipe. That piece of pipe could have a swing valve on it, a straight valve, just like a standard valve you buy, you know, a half inch, it's got a little turn, twisty valve. So then you could turn that valve to do a little bit more restriction to fine-tune it to make sure that you were able to maintain a top level even while it was dribbling out. And then I think you could, like, like I said, I think you could run in your, your spring and summer in most of the country, you could run uh, 15 on, 45 off. I think it wouldn't be a problem. Um, and then I think you could run 12 on, 12 off the rest of the season. What I would actually recommend in this scenario, though, is two pumps. Your larger system pump and a smaller agitation pump that runs that runs all the time. Um, so that it's just agitating water. Uh, you know, through a spray bar or something like that. To your main fish tank only is all you would need to do that. Or if you have multiple tanks with fish, to your fish tanks. Um, the other thing you could do is you could set your timers... To that smaller pump come on, runs for 30 minutes, and then your circulation pump runs for 30 minutes, and, and they alternate. So you just have your timers exactly opposite each other, and it, it, again, it doesn't even matter what time you set them to, as long as you set them to the same time, the mechanical timers, that would work perfectly. And then, then you could run 12 on 12 off or 15 on 45 off all year. If you have surface agitation going at all times, either through the ebb and flow bed or through your spray bar, yes, you have two pumps, but you've just cut your power consumption massively because that little pump could be drawing something like, oh, I don't know, 30 watts. So your system pump might be drawing 100 watts, 150 watts. So you go from 150 watts on 24 hours a day to 150 watts on um, eight hours a day, and 30 watts on, um, what, your, your 18 hours a day, right? Yeah, 18 hours a day. Well, that's a huge savings. That's a huge savings. That's actually better than 12 on 12 off with the bigger pump. And you never are without surface agitation. So that's another thing you could do. The other thing you could do, if you have the right setup, you could run your agitation with an air compressor pump 
which is far less of a power draw than most water pumps. So that would be another way to do it. Um, personally, um, I'm trying to build into my systems now water agitation from a water pump and water agitation from an air pump. So if one fails, the other one is still available. And that's kind of really a much more resilient model. So lots of stuff to add there. So what I wanted to talk to you today about as I wrap up is taxes. And I know it's not the most exciting subject, but there's some things that need to be said here because I'm always on you guys about working the tax code to your advantage. And some of you can't. And we kind of talked about that yesterday, and I held back a little bit for today. And here's what spawned the, the first part of the discussion. Uh, Jerry, who sent me stuff tons over the years, said, when someone has only W-2 income, at what level should they get professional help in connection with their taxes? I've always done my own tax on TurboTax, but my income has gone up, and I'm wondering if it's time to seek professional help, maybe in connection with strategies to reduce my tax footprint. Jerry. And I already responded to Jerry, and I said, this year, you probably don't need any help from a CPA, to do your taxes. There's not, and your taxes are going to be simpler than they ever were. You might want to get in touch with a CPA and in conjunction with any investment advisor or money manager you're using for your investments to see if you have some tax strategies that can be beneficial to you. However, if you don't have a business, then you probably don't need a CPA. And that is also different than it was before the Trump tax cuts. There's a, and I also want to explain this because there's a lot of people running around spouting nonsense about, I didn't get a tax cut, only the rich people got tax cuts. No one, no one directly had their taxes raised under Trump's tax plan. Not a single entity or person is paying more taxes directly. Now, there's two things that could cause a person to have a much smaller refund than they're accustomed to that are kind of really connected. There's one that's a little bit loosely connected. And there is a thing that could cause a person to pay more tax, even though it's not a direct result of the tax system as a whole. Up until the new Trump tax plan, you could deduct 100% of either your state income tax or your state um, sales tax. If your state had one or the other, you use that one. If your state had both, you pick the one most beneficial to you. Living in Texas, we always deducted our sales tax. There was what's called a safe harbor deduction available, which meant like you can just claim that amount with no records and it's okay. They just assume you spent only so much money. Since we spent more than that, my wife kept every single receipt, ran an Excel spreadsheet, and you know the few hours she spent was paid back at probably you know a rate of about three hundred dollars an hour. Is what we figured out she was making us by avoiding giving them our money. That was worth doing. And so there was that. Plus there was property taxes and mortgage interest. And all of this was deductible if you did what's called itemize. You did a 1040 long instead of a 1040 EZ. And it made most sense for anybody that at least had a house, it almost always made sense to itemize. The standard deduction, though, at the time... so. There's what's called a standard deduction. This means for every person in your, in your, that you're filing taxes with, you can take this deduction. If you have kids, there's a dependent deduction, but if you're a married couple, your kids are gone or you don't have any, the standard deduction was $6,000 a piece. comes straight off your income. So a married couple, $12,000. Plus, then you could, you, you could itemize. 
And if you itemized, and your itemizing was bigger than that $12,000, it made sense to itemize. So if you had a good accountant, they would kind of look at your stuff and go, yeah, I think we can do better, or no, we're not going to. And you either made it real simple, you took the standard deductions, or you itemized. And this is why a lot of people didn't have a business. It did make sense to have, you know, at least like a Jackson Hewitt, a, a CPA, or, you know, uh, something like that, right? Um, then what happened when they made these changes, they capped. They call it the salt limit. So all of that stuff, your property tax, your, your sales tax, your state income tax, you can only deduct up to $10,000 worth of that. And then you itemize everything else you can. Now, this is not anything to do with business deductions. This is just the average person that has a house and lives in a taxed state in some way, sales or income, which is all of them have one or the other. And so what happened and what can hurt people that live in stupid states like New Jersey where people pay $20,000 of property tax on a 3-2 house is they can end up paying more in federal income tax now. They absolutely can. But the person they should be pissed at is their governor, not President Trump. Because all that did was increase federalism. There's nowhere in the Constitution that said you were supposed to get that as a deduction. And that's not something that we always had. That was actually relatively new that we were able to do that. So, for instance, in my world, I have two sets of things that we go through with an account. One is all these normal deductions everybody has, if it's worth doing. And the other is all the business deductions. Let's put the business deductions on the shelf. So you might think, well, Jack, you live in a pretty nice house. You've been deducting all this stuff. You're probably pissed off about this. No. Our salt limit of 10K, we would be right there. We'd be 100 bucks over it, 100 bucks under it, somewhere right around there. It doesn't really affect us that directly. But when we itemize, that portion of our, our taxes always came out at around $16,000 to $18,000. That made it worth doing because that's better than 12, right? That's, that's more. That reduced our taxes. That made sense. But what the Trump administration pushed for and got in this uh, tax code change was not only did they lower the tax brackets for everybody, and they did. They also doubled the standard deductions. And this is when Trump was saying your taxes will be easier to file. He wasn't talking about business owners. He was talking about the average person. The average person doesn't cover $24,000 in deductions. They don't hit that number. So instead of going through all the shit to figure out, you know, this much from taxes, this much from sales tax, this over here, that over there, you just put in $24,000 as a married couple now. So if you were deducting 18, now you're deducting 24, and your tax bracket went down, you certainly did not have your taxes go up. You see how that works? It's basic mathematics. So what happened, though, and I knew this was going to be a problem. I saw people cheering about how great the tax cut was because all of a sudden they had extra money in their paychecks. One thing you need to understand about President Trump, like him or hate him, you've got to understand this to understand what he's doing and why he's doing what he's doing. Trump is a less eloquent Ronald Reagan. And not because that's who he is, because that's who he has chosen to model his presidency offer after. If you look at everything the man is doing, right down to, I will talk nice to this country, people will think I'm giving them too much, but on the backside of it, I'll sanction the shit out of them, I'll be tough as hell. 
But yeah, I'll go talk to Putin. I'll be nice when I talk to Putin. I'll be nice when I talk to, to, to Kim Jong Ding Dong, right? But I'll sanction the shit out of him. That's right out of the Reagan playbook. Reagan, for as much as you conservatives love him, was a centrist Democrat, just like Trump is. He's a centrist Democrat with a decent, not great stand on the Second Amendment. That's who the man is. That's who Ronald Reagan is. That's why he brought you the single biggest tax increase in American history. Ronald Reagan raised taxes more than any other president that's ever existed. You don't believe me? They called it saving Social Security. Go look at the numbers. You'll see I'm not lying. All right. So, with this new tax system, the people that are going to get bent over hard are the people in these high-taxed states that can't use all those deductions anymore. And again, if you're in New York, you need to take that to Albany, not D.C. If you're, if you're in, in, you know... If you're in New Jersey, you need to take it to, what the, is it Trenton? I don't know. where. What the, what the hell is the capital of New Jersey? I don't even remember. I was born there. It is Trenton, isn't it? It sounds right. Anyway, you know, whatever. I, you know, that's how much I care about New Jersey. I can't, I'm not even sure if I know what the capital is. But I think you need to take that to Trenton. You know, if it was Texas, we need to take that to Austin. When your state's taxing you for 20, 20 25 grand for a normal house a year in property taxes... That's not something the federal government caused to happen. That's something your state caused to happen. In general, everybody got a tax cut. Is it enough? No. You know me. I want zero. Can't do it. I can show you how we can, but, you know, the more the better. But that's what's going on. So the other side of this I was talking about, the other thing Reagan did, and, and, and Trump's literally done everything as it can be done today versus 1980s that Reagan did. When Reagan fiddled with the tax code and did cut the, the income tax while raising Social Security, the other thing they did to help spur the economy was they changed the withholding tables. So if you have a job, you have an HR department somewhere, whether it's one one lady named you know Helga in the back somewhere that no one ever talks to, or you're a big company you have an actual department that handles things like your payroll, or you have a payroll services company like Paychecks or somebody that, that does that through as your HR component for that. They deduct from your paycheck based on how you fill out your W-9, I'm single with zero, single with two, whatever, however many deductions you put down, and I want an additional amount withheld or I don't. And then they take that and they use a tax table that the government provides that tells them if this person files this way on their W-9, take this much out versus how much they made. That's the withholding schedule. Okay. It has nothing to do with how much tax you actually owe or don't owe. Because you could put there single and 20 deductions and pay no no deductions, but you're going to pay in the end. You got it? Okay? Or you could put down single zero, be Patrick Roman and have 97 kids, and you're going to get every penny you put in back. You could, It's not connected to how much you actually pay. Well, what the Trump administration did, just like the Reagan administration did, is they changed that withholding. And they were too generous about it because that made people feel good because they have more money in their pocket, so they spend more money. So the government taxed you less and withheld less all year, so your refund is not what you're accustomed to because they took less from you, so they have less to give you back. And then it was aggravated by the withholding schedule being changed too generously in your favor during the year. That's what's going on. So when somebody says, I didn't get a tax return, okay, either you made a shitload more money and you changed tax brackets and you don't understand how that works, 
and your employer should be indicted for being stupid enough to give you more money, or you live in an incredibly highly taxed state and you need to move or, or go visit your governor until he fixes it, okay, um, or most likely you actually paid less in total taxes and you think a refund or a final payment due is your taxes versus how much tax you actually paid. That's the reality. That's all these fools on Facebook. And people say, Jack, how can you know that? <sighs> Because the reason Excel never lies is math doesn't lie. Math doesn't lie. You can't double standard deductions. You can't lower the individual tax rates and have anybody actually as a direct consequence pay more taxes. You can't eliminate deductions like the SALT cap, and that can cause people to pay more in taxes, but only because they had less that they could deduct. That's all. It doesn't actually mean that their income was taxed at anywhere near approaching a higher rate when, in fact, it was taxed at a lower rate. Everybody got a cut. The people that didn't, you either, again, made more money, or you really, really, really need to do something about your state-level government. And I have a suggestion. I have a suggestion. You live in New Jersey, New York, Illinois, Massachusetts, Delaware, Connecticut, etc. Move. That's my just that's that is my honest to god recommendation. Move, but do us a favor. Come to Texas, we will welcome you. Leave your liberal bullshit back in the state that it screwed up. Leave your shit, all of you people that are thinking about moving. Leave your bullshit behind. We don't want it here. All right. One of my suggestions for a satire headline, because it's based on reality, is Texas governor deports all hippies back to California. You want to come here from California because your state screwed up and your job is gone? Great. You come in here because your company moved its headquarters here because they're tired of getting bent over and raped up the butt in taxes? So they're bringing the headquarters here and they wanted to keep you, so they're bringing you along? Remember why you left. Don't bring your bullshit with you. Leave the baggage behind. With that, we have wrapped up another episode of the show. want to remind you guys, again, you can support the show by coming a, becoming a member. That's all I'll say about that today. But you can learn more by clicking on members at the website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Remember, we do have the masterclass out available for free from Jeff Lawton. Or you can enroll in the PDC. And the way you can really support us is you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That is T-S-P-A-Z.com. I got a product for you today on T-Spaz that I think you'll really like. It's called BioGroom Waterless Pet Shampoo. Brought it to you last fall, and I'm bringing it to you again today. Why am I bringing it to you today? Because today, I looked outside my door, and I saw what I've seen for the last two weeks, except for one day out of the last two weeks. Gloom, cold, mud, and rain. That is winter in Texas, and it's what we have right now. Now, sooner or later, no matter how cold it is out, no matter how wet it is out, and how muddy, muddy it is out, the dogs have to go out to pee. I'm not Bruce Almighty. I can't make the dog pee in the toilet. The dog's got to go out. Dogs go out sometimes when the rain stopped, and the rain starts, and a dog comes in. A wet dog is a smelly dog. The last thing I want to do when it's 41 degrees in the middle of the day, it's dark and dreary and muddy is take a 100-pound pit bull that doesn't want a bath and knows what a garden hose is and try to give him a bath to get the stink off him. Enter BioGroom Waterless Bath No Rinse Shampoo. How does this stuff work? It's like magic. You spray your dog. You give him a brushing. 
and he rolls around on the floor because he thinks he's wet. He's not really wet, and you're done. And even my cowardly little Lucy Lou endures the spray of BioGroom. I have to take her out on the porch. Can't do her inside because she'll pee a little, but I can do it. I can get it done. Washing that dog with a hose is a nightmare. The littlest one is the worst. I don't know about that, though, because I don't know if you've ever tried to bathe a 150-pound German Shepherd that doesn't want to get a bath. It's not fun. Doing it in the mud and the cold, really not fun. But BioGroom to the rescue. Pair it up with a Ferminator and pair it up with a cheap, easy, everyday, wide-bristle brush. It's all in my review. And uh, use that on your pups. And I'm going to tell you right now, you can get rid of stinky dog season. You can make it a thing of the past. And I, I'm not sure exactly how this stuff works, but it works really good. Your dogs will be shiny. And I'll tell you the, the secret. It's the same thing as when I do the ear cleaning with them. They know that as soon as they get sprayed and brushed, they're getting a treat. They know it. So they don't like it, but what they're thinking in the canine brain, I don't really like this, but I sure like those biscuits. So pair that up. And put an end to stinky dog season in your home. And have nice shiny coats and happy wagging tails. Because remember, your dog is part of your family. And I honestly feel this way. People that don't feel that their dog is part of their family probably don't deserve a dog in their family. Dogs are awesome. Uh, there is there is no creature. There's no, And I like other animals, man. I'm a fish geek. I got cats. You know, I love reptiles. You know, I uh, love my ducks. Well, there is no animal that has co-evolved with man the way that the dog has. The dog is the single most dedicated animal to man on the planet. When they say the dog is man's best friend, they mean it. I agree with it. My best friend's sitting at my feet. If I trust my dog with this product, you know you can trust your dog with this product too. With that, we have come to the end of another episode. It is Cool Covers Week. We're doing all kinds of cool covers. We're doing a band called Boyce Avenue. Their, their band was two brothers, and the name of the band is from streets that they lived on when they were kids. And they're pretty ballsy to do a cover that they did here. Dream On by Aerosmith. As I've been saying this week, two ways covers get done. One, you try to stay true to the original, and two, you try to make it your own. I think a lot of times people don't think it's a good idea to make it your own, but I think when you do, it works. Because you don't get judged against the original as much. Right? It's a totally different thing, especially to take a country song and make it rock or take a rock song and make it country. Right? If you make a, a, a pop song, jazz, you can do things like that, and then the song stands alone by itself. The difficulty in doing a cover where you stay true to the original, especially something as iconic as this song by Aerosmith and the vocals of a Steven Tyler, is everybody that listens to it, when it's clear what the song is, and it hasn't been drastically changed, has an expectation of what it's about to sound like, and you better either be really good in your own way, really good in your own way, or you better be really damn good at rich littling the thing. Some of you went, well, rich what? Oh, youngsters, oh, there used to be a man. His name was Rich Little. He was the greatest impressionist that ever existed. There was nobody's voice that he could not duplicate. Look him up. He was a blast. Um, but you better be really good at sounding just like them or sounding close and being good enough to pull it off. I would say these guys, close, good enough to pull it off. This is a fantastic cover of this song, and it's a fantastic song. Um, 
without getting into the direct meaning of the words, let's just talk a little bit here since we're heading into a weekend about the value of a dream. A dream is either the most crushing thing on the planet or the most valuable thing on the planet for an individual. A dream that is just a dream and will always just be a dream that a person defers parts of their life over, that they waste time over, that they don't act because one day this thing is just going to magically happen is a huge boat anchor of a weight on your life. But a dream pursued aggressively and assertively and intelligently with a handle on lifestyle design is one of the most driving forces a man can have. And even if we do not achieve the dream itself, the pursuit of the dream will lead us to other dreams and other goals and other successes and help us make the most of our dash. So this weekend, dare to dream, but be even more daring and dare to chase your dream. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
drink of